wonderful, wonderful message. Thank you, brother. Thank you. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. We are only a few sermons into this new series, and I am loving it, and I hope you are as well. Luke is the the one who checks the facts that all that we know of Jesus and all that God has fulfilled is that we may have exact truth and certainty within our belief, within our faith, that we, that we may know of Christ. And so we continue today in this sermon series on the Gospel of Luke, a man that was a physician, a historian, and a companion of the great Apostle Paul, and he is giving us this this view of Christ through his gospel that we may know, that we may know Christ, may have security in that we may be certain of what took place. And like any good historian, he begins at the very beginning. He, he, he even goes, most people, you know, we, we see the issue with Mark, that he just begins with Jesus' ministry. We see Matthew beginning with Jesus' birth. John goes all the way back to before time itself, but, but Luke begins where God broke his 400-year silence. He breaks his 400-year silence from the last time that he spoke to his people. And he promised them a, a prophet. He promised them a forerunner who would come as an ambassador of the Messiah. And so, John, so Luke picks up where God breaks that silence and begins to bring forth this prophet. John the Baptist is his name. And John's coming was foretold 700 years previously by the prophet Isaiah, the one who would cry in the wilderness. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3, 4, and 5. But 300 years later, God would once again promise this prophet in the book of Malachi. And we saw this last week in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 of the one who would come, turning the hearts of children to their fathers and fathers to their children. And so now after that prophecy to Malachi, 400 years have passed, 400 years of waiting. And God now breaks his silence here in Luke chapter 1 with the coming of the angel Gabriel. And he comes to the lowly priest, Zechariah. And so last week, you and I examined the testimony of Zechariah and Elizabeth. We, we, we examined their life, and we'll do that again next week a little bit. But, but today, we're going to look now at the promise of a prophet that was given to Zechariah. And I want to begin with this encounter that he has with the angel Gabriel. And as you see here, as we look at these verses, verses 8 through 17, what you're going to find is, is that this promise is more than just the coming of a prophet. It is a description of the life of this prophet, the description of the type of man that this prophet is going to be, about his greatness. So if you will, look with me. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. It says, Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to send to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were in prayer outside at an hour of incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel, and he fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, 
for your petition has been heard from your wife and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine or liquor and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children to the, to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? And we'll pick up on that later next week. William Shakespeare once wrote, he said, Some are born great and some achieve greatness, while others have greatness thrust upon them. John the Baptist is one of those guys where he could probably fit into all three categories. He is an individual who is going, that we see, he's going to be born great. He is going to achieve greatness. The fact that we are still talking about him 2,000 years later, but we also see that it is thrust upon him. And so he can kind of fit into all three of those categories when we talk about this issue of greatness. The scriptures affirm this. We see this in verse 15 where Gabriel says to his fought to John's father, Zechariah, that he will be great in the sight of the Lord. But we even see this, if you were, and if you would turn to the right a little bit, Luke chapter 7. We will we'll see this even confirmed not only by an angel of the Lord, but we will see this confirmed by God himself, by Jesus Christ, who says, who tells us of John. It says in verse 24 of chapter 7, it says, When the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out? He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Look at verse 25. John, uh, Luke, Luke 7, 25. He says, but what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. And look at verse 28. He says, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Notice here, we see Jesus, God in the flesh, the Son of God, who affirms the very thing that Gabriel said, that John the Baptist would be great in the sight of God. And then God says to the people, that guy is great in my sight. I love this. And then he goes even further and says, there will be others who will be even greater, and it will be those who are the least in the kingdom. And we'll look at that in just a moment. But here we must take notice of the greatness of this prophet that is to come. This, this prophet who, in the sight of God, notice that, in the sight of God he will be great. Notice it does not say in the sight of men. It does not say in the sight of a religious system. It does not say in the sight of the world. If you remember from last week, this is very similar to the parents of John the Baptist, that they were, that they were good in the sight of righteous in the sight of God. Brothers and sisters, I ask you a question this morning. What other kind of greatness even matters right there are those who will chase after the greatness in the sight of men and worldly systems and things like that but at the end of the day does it even truly matter 
What greatness can matter than to be found great in the sight of God himself? And we see that in the scriptures that it tells us that there is none greater, that there is no greater ambition than that you and I would be righteous in the sight of God, that we would be great in the sight of God, that it is his eyes and his eyes alone that matters. What's interesting about this is, is that in chapter 1 of Luke, you can actually see a little bit of a contrast because we read last week in verse 5 of this guy by the name of King Herod. And his name was, his nickname was King Herod what? The Great. Within the eyes of the world, within the eyes of the Roman Empire, within the eyes of Jews and Gentiles, within the eyes of himself, he may have been great, but in the eyes of God, he was not. But now God promises a prophet who will, who will be great. But what made him great? Matter of fact, what defines this greatness in the sight of God? There are three things that I want you to see in the text today. Three things that, that we just read, that, that we see within the text, the angel is promising to us, but we also read in chapter 7 where Jesus himself affirms these three things within John. I want you to see first the, prophet of, uh, the prophet's God. Secondly, we'll look at the prophet's holiness. And then thirdly, we'll look at the prophet's mission. Notice first the prophet's God. We see that here that John is going to serve Yahweh. He's going to serve God himself. Now, we have eyewitness accounts there in the book of Matthew that John the Baptist, that before he was baptized, baptized Jesus, he was baptizing others. And John himself said to the people in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, he says, He who is coming after me is mightier than I. I am not fit to remove his sandals you got to love this. So we understand the Bible tells us that John will be great in the sight of God. He's going to do a lot of wonderful things. He's going to have great ministry. He's going to be a holy individual. But what's amazing is, is that John's own testimony is, is that there is one that is greater than he. John is referring to Jesus Christ. He is referring to the Son of God. He is referring to God in the flesh. Brothers and sisters, to understand the greatness of John, we must understand the greatness of the one that he pointed to, the greatness of the one that he served. Even John understood that. And thankfully, Luke gives us a picture or a glimpse into the greatness of the God that calls John into this type of, into this type of lifestyle as a prophet, into this mission. He gives us a glimpse of the greatness of God at work even before John is even born. So again, go back and look at verse 8, 9, and 10. Notice again, it says, Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service, before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside the hour of incense offering. Notice here the greatness of the God who brings John into existence and then calls him to his own service. Notice first the sovereignty and the providence of God. By this I mean that we see that God's oversight over the world and the universe of itself. Over the very things of, we say, well God controls the larger things but not the smaller details. Well, he's controlling the birth of John the Baptist himself. And nothing is left to chance here. In, in, in verse 8 it says, now it happened. A better translation may be that it came to pass. This signifies that what follows becomes a reality. 
And we find that it becomes a reality because God is sovereignly in control and that this is his providential hand at work here. He's bringing all of this to, to come about. It happened that because it was God's desire, God's will. We say, well, what is the reason for this? Look at verse 9. He was chosen by lots or a lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, last week I explained to you what this is that there were around 20,000 priests in, at the time. The, 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 the fact that he would be chosen for this, op, for this duty was phenomenal. It, it was beyond belief that he could just become, because many of these priests would never get chosen for these special duties of the burning of the incense and other things. And we see here that it happened at, his, at the time of the order, and then the lots fall just right, and Zechariah is the guy who is chosen. And we see that, that he is the one that gets to go into the temple. And we say, well, that was luck, that was chance, that was just the way it was. No, Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its very decision is from the Lord. What is that telling us? That's telling us that when you roll the dice... When you throw the lots, it's not by chance. This is God at work here. His will is coming about, meaning that God controls how those dice fall. And so Zechariah is not experiencing chance or luck here that he has been chosen to go into the temple. This is the hand of God directing all things. So think about this. As great as John the Baptist is and was, brothers and sisters, without God's oversight in his own birth, he would have never existed. He would never exist because his own father and mother were bare and he could not have children. John's greatness depended upon the greatness of the God that he served. Brothers and sisters, there's no difference between you and us. That, our, that who we are and what we become and how we would define greatness depends on how great the God of this world is in our own eyes. The one that we serve. But secondly, notice the authority of God. Look at verse 11. We see here that the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Here we see an angel fulfilling the role of messenger. We see the authority of God. Angels serve God. They are great, majestic beings. But they do nothing outside the the rule and the authority of the one they serve. They go where God tells them to go. They say what God tells them to say. They do as God commands them to do. Great, majestic beings here. And yet they are under the control of God. The power of God. And the authority of God is seen here in that these angels, that God himself is not only directing the affairs of man, but what else is he directing? He is directing the affairs of heaven. God is directing both heaven and earth. But thirdly, notice the power of God. Verse 13 says that Zechariah, it says, Zechariah, for your petition has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will give him the name John. God's power here answers two prayers. You may assume that there is only one prayer that is being answered. And many of us say, we believe that when you read this, that basically the angel is saying, John, your prayer has been answered, brother. You're going to have a child. But, but there's, that's one prayer. There's actually another one and a greater one that is being answered. You see, John, or Zechariah, I have a little tongue twister today. Zechariah is burning the incense. 
And this was a symbol of the prayers of Israel that were going up to the Lord. And so they would burn these incense. And as the smoke and the stuff would go up, it was symbolizing the prayers of the priest. That as he, lit, as he was lighting the incense, the prayers of his people, on behalf of the people he is praying, it would go up to God. And so notice that it tells us, it says, Your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. The petition is likely his prayer on behalf of Israel. What did the priest pray for when he was burning the incense? The same thing they always prayed for. That a Messiah would come. And so the angel comes and he looks to Zechariah and he says, Zechariah, the petition has been heard. The prayer is being answered. A Savior is coming and he is going to redeem my people. He's coming, he's going to redeem you. And then he goes, Oh, by the way, your other prayer has been answered. Your wife, who could not have children, is about to have a child. And it's both intermingled into the same will of God. Beloved, before we ever hear of the greatness of John the Baptist, Luke shines a light on the greatness of God. John was considered great only because the God that he served was great. In fact, let's just be real honest this morning, and I will quote Paul Washer here. There are no great men and women. There are none. You say, well, what about all those saints of the Bible? They were not great. They were full of weaknesses. They were full of inabilities. They were full of sin. They were full of limitations and failures and flaws. Well, what about David? He murdered people. Well, what about Solomon? Well, he, he was a, a, a horrible adulterer, split the kingdom. Well, well, what about Moses? Yeah, he murdered somebody as well. What about Abraham? He lied. No, brothers and sisters, there are no great men and women. There are only weak men and women who serve a great God. And that's what we see here. And for us to even jump ahead of this thing and say John the Baptist was great without recognizing the, the power and the authority and the sovereignty of the God that he served, it would be sinful and incorrect, brothers and sisters. It has always been this way from the beginning that all great saints, all great spiritual giants saw themselves as weak individuals. Only God. As, as, as Brother Trey was just singing, only God. Everything is His and everything that happens is, happens for because of Him. And so do you see the greatness of God? Or do you see yourself being great? You must answer this question, brothers and sisters. If we are going to follow in the footsteps of John the Baptist ourselves and be individuals where Jesus himself says that John was great and that those who are the least in the kingdom are even greater than him, if we ourselves are going to find ourselves great in the eyes of the Lord, you must answer that question. Do you see the God that you serve as great or do you see yourself as being great who serves God? Because many of us will boast and hit our chest and say, I serve God and I do this and I do that for Him and I don't do this and everybody else does those things. And look at me. Rather than saying, if not for God, I wouldn't even be here. Brothers and sisters, go to the Scriptures to see the greatness of God. 
If your eyes are on yourself and you see yourself great and you cannot see the greatness of God, you have not went to the Scriptures. You have not studied the Scriptures. You have not read the Scriptures deeply. You have not looked at them and seen that if not for God and His greatness and in His power and His authority and His sovereignty, brothers and sisters, there would be no salvation and there would be no redemption. As a matter of fact, if not for the greatness of our God, you and I would not be here because we cannot sustain this world in and of ourselves. I would challenge you this morning to go and see the greatness of God. But not only that, I would go and challenge you to go and look and see the weakness and sinfulness of man. From Genesis to Revelation, all that we find is that mankind is, is, is sinful and weak. And that without the Lord's provision, without Him, brothers and sisters, we are nothing but dust. Our righteousness is but filthy rags. You must decrease and He must increase. Take a page out of John's own notebook in John chapter 3, verse 25 through 30, that when they come to John and they say, John, Jesus is baptizing more people than you. He's becoming greater than you. John said, yep, exactly right. That is the greatness, brothers and sisters, of those who are the, weak, who are the least in the kingdom. They know they're the least in the kingdom, and they know that their king is all of that and more. We must die to the desire of our own glory and increase the desire for His glory. We must die to depending on ourselves and find a dependence in Him. But secondly, notice the prophet's holiness. Look at verse 15. It says, For He will be great in the sight of the Lord, and He will drink no wine or liquor, and He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in His mother's womb. And we look at this description of John's greatness here in the eyes of God, and there are two things, this issue of no wine and liquor and this issue of being filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. And we know that he's filled even before birth, why he's in the womb, because when Mary comes, John leaps inside of her. And the Bible tells us, Luke tells us, this is the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is in John, and he is leaping and giving praise. Why? Because my Lord is before me. Oh my goodness, isn't there just something that can be taught? I don't need science, by the way, to tell me that abortion is wrong, right? I don't need science to tell me that the child in the womb has a soul and is a living being because we see it here within the Scriptures. We see it here that John himself receives the Holy Spirit while he's even in the mother's womb. So soak that in for just a minute. So, soak it in here that, that for just a second that John the Baptist will receive the Spirit before he's even born. How amazing is that? That as millions and millions of children around the world are being killed and slaughtered, and we wonder what hope do they have of ever going to heaven? What hope do they have that they could be saved when they're not even out of the womb yet? And God shows us right here with John the Baptist. I can bring salvation and grace and mercy and righteousness and greatness even to those who are in the womb. How great is our God? How great is He? And then we see this issue of no liquor and no wine. And we immediately think, yep, He's going to be a teetotaler. And if you want to be great in the kingdom, you can never drink alcohol. Brothers and sisters, if that's where you go with this, then you're missing the point. You are missing the point. In fact, to truly understand this, you actually... The help, I think, would be helpful would be Ephesians chapter 5. You may remember that the Apostle Paul writes to the church of Ephesus in chapter 5, there in verse 15. 
he says to them, he says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand that the will of the Lord is what the will of the Lord is. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father. We see this here. It's very, very similar. The Apostle Paul, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, writes to this church and he commands the church of Ephesus after five chapters, four chapters, of telling them doctrine and all these things. He's now telling them how to live. And he tells them to walk in holiness and in wisdom. To not sin. The days are evil. There is evil, isn't there, in this world? And we saw this morning, if you were not in Sunday school, then you missed this, but we saw this morning that that Lot himself, who was a righteous man, yet was living in Sodom and was influenced by the evil world around him. So we understand that this takes place and that this happens. And so what we see here in Luke is the same thing that Paul is writing in Ephesus, that they must walk in holiness to not sin and act like the people around them, but that John is to be set apart and to walk in a way that is separate from the sinfulness and the temptations of the world and the influence of the world. Notice it says to not drink liquor or wine, that he, or he wouldn't. Now this is not the full Nazarite vow because it says nothing about the hair. But what he's saying here is, is that very much like the Nazarite vow, very similar here, is that there would be a separation of oneself from things that are unclean. Things that can contaminate one's relationship with God. Sinful and worldly things. It implies a life of sanctification, a life of holiness, a life of purity. John, similar to his parents, will live a life of moral excellence. But John will go even further. John's going to go even further than his mother and his father. Because here's the deal. Though his mother and father are living a life of righteousness and moral excellence, they are still within a wicked uh, compromised religious system notice that john what does he do he goes to the wilderness he's not there within the system of his day the religious system because they were corrupt and immoral but he's also not part of the roman society john is literally physically going to separate himself in such a way from both of these wicked evil uh, organization things influences in his life that he may live a life of holiness unto the lord But notice it also says that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And this is how John will live a life set apart unto the Lord. How will John be able to do this? How do I live in a world that is as wicked and sinful as it is with all of its influences and truly set myself apart and not fall into sin when it's always around me? He answers the question, the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, similar to Ephesians 5, John's life of holiness begins with the power of the Spirit in him. For John the Baptist, it's going to begin from birth. From birth, he gets a head start than, than most of us here. He gets, he gets, or all of us here, he gets a head start that from birth, he, he's got the Spirit in him and he's going to begin to be set apart for holiness and he's going to be empowered to live this way as he progresses, as he grows physically. And we see that This is what makes John great in the eyes of the Lord. He is great not because he himself just 
is better than everyone else, but because we see the holiness and the righteousness of God in his life. Again, it is Christ's righteousness, it is Christ's holiness, it is the Spirit of God in him, working in him, sanctifying him, growing him in his faith, that he may live separate life from these worldly influences and be sinful. Brothers and sisters, he was filled with the Spirit, meaning that he has come, that he has been come to the same knowledge of Christ. May I say to you this morning that if you and I are ever going to be considered great in the sight of God, you will never be great apart from a saving knowledge of God. I don't care what the world thinks of you or how much money you have or what you accomplish. Apart from the saving work of the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you and I are the very opposite of great. And so we see here the need of salvation. We see here the need of the Spirit in us. And so I would say to you this morning, if you are an unbeliever this morning, no matter what ambitions you have, no matter what you've accomplished in your past and what you're going to accomplish in the future, brother or sister, hear me this morning. If you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior this morning, whatever it is that you think that you're really good and great at will amount to nothing but judgment and wrath. But we see here that Christ who died on the cross, who rose from the grave, who brings forgiveness to all who repent and believe, and not only that, but sends His Spirit in to live within us, to set us apart and begin to empower us to live holy life, that that is truly what God considers great. I would call upon you this morning that you must come and repent. You must come this morning and repent of your sins and believe upon Jesus Christ. You must come this morning and recognize that you are not really great that you are really nothing without Christ and without his work of salvation. So I would call, come, repent of your sins and believe upon Christ this morning and do not wait. But not only that, we see that John to be set apart for holiness, that he had to rely on the Spirit within him, that he had to rely on the Spirit to be able to live a righteous, holy life. Brothers and sisters, that if you are a believer this morning, you have within you this morning the power. It is not your power, it is a heavenly power, divine power, but you have been given a power in you to begin to help you, to begin to empower you, to fight against sin, to make the sacrifices that you need to make. And some of you may be even under conviction this morning because you know that you claim to be a Christian, but you are not walking in holiness. You may, in the eyes of the men and women of this church and in other places, you may in your own eyes begin to say, well, I do all these things, so I've got to be good. Yeah, I do all these things, I've got to be righteous. You may be able to say that you go to church and do this, whatever. But hear me this morning. It is those things that other people don't see. It is those things that only God sees in your life that gets to dictate whether you are holy and righteous in the sight of God. And some of us, our marriages are not holy. They're not holy. And we want to claim to be Christians, and we want to claim to be great Christians, and yet we are walking and living in utter sin. And we want to compromise, and we want to dictate, well, it's not that big of a deal. But in the eyes of God, it is. Maybe it's your attitude, and maybe it is your 
your, the way you are at your job, or maybe it is your thought life, maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's your parenting, maybe it's the computer screen, maybe it's your language, maybe it's your anger, but whatever it is, brothers and sisters, you know without a shadow of a doubt that deep inside of you that it is not right before a holy God, and you continue to walk in it, yet trying to convince yourself that you are right when you are not. Holiness is sacrificially sacrificial living you make the sacrifices and you go live in the wilderness and you eat the bugs and you do all those things why because you know that what matters most is what God thinks and how I live for him and many of us are unwilling to make the sacrifices in our life and those sacrifices can only be made through the power of the spirit of God Go to God in prayer and ask Him to empower you, to make, to make you holy. Examine your life to see if your life matches up with that of the Scriptures, that, that, that what they describe as being holy and not what the world says is holy. And make the sacrifices. Do what is right. Quit waiting around and make changes in your life. That is what God sees. That is what finds God's favor. A broken and contrite spirit, repentance and turning from sin. We see the prophet's holiness was considered great. But thirdly, notice the prophet's mission. Look at verse 16 and 17. He says, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. And it, and it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. you got to love this mission that John has been given, that he's going to go ahead of Jesus Christ. He will go ahead of Jesus in birth, in life, in ministry, and even in death. And everything that he is doing is preparing the way of Jesus. This issue of a forerunner, this term forerunner, it, it means to proceed. Um, it's one that proceeds and indicates the approach of another one. So again, John's not just preparing the way, he's not just going ahead of the way, he, he's going ahead of the way, but he's also saying the one who comes behind me is greater than I. In the days of Rome, the emperor would go to a, if he would go to a city or, or a, a location, he would send one ahead of him to make sure that the roads were clear, that there was no hindrance from him to get from point A to point B. But also this ambassador would also prepare the people for when the emperor would come, they would cheer and they would be ready for his message. In a similar way, John the Baptist would go ahead of Jesus for the very purpose of preparing the way of Christ. What is exactly, or which is exactly what he did, because many of his followers ended up following who? Jesus. Many of, again, many of them will come, some of them are going to come and they're going to go, why are you pointing them to Jesus? They're, they're leaving to go. Andrew has left, he's, he's gone to follow Jesus. Why are you doing this? And John simply says, this is my mission in life. This is the very purpose and the very mission of John, a mission of conversion and salvation through the preaching and the teaching and the discipling. Notice that the angel says that he would turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. That word tur turn there means to turn around, to reverse one's direction. Figuratively, it does mean to conversion salvation repentance we're turning away from our sin we're turning to god the idea is to turn one's faith and life toward god which includes by the way moral holy living a 
the center of John's preaching was the call to repent and come back to the Lord. That the people of Israel had sinned. They had rebelled against God. They were looking into a religious system of legalism to save them. And John says, no, your salvation is going to be found in this Messiah and Messiah alone. Faith in this Messiah. But we cannot, you and I are not prophets. We don't have the office of prophets anymore. But I will say this, that you have been given a great mission, very much like John's. In 2 Corinthians 5, 20, 21, we read, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see the greatness of John's mission here? The greatness of his mission was to bring other people to know the greatness of God. Is this not the great commission? To go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. Is this not the Great Commission? Is this not the mission that God has given John, but also given you and me, the mission that he's given to our church? Brothers and sisters, to be great in the sight of God is going to be those who are least in the kingdom who are willing to make the sacrifices and put forth the effort to embrace the mission that he has given us. Nothing else matters. Your bank accounts, your popularity, retirement, all, all these other things. What, not, not to say that you, don't, you can't do all those other things, but at the end of the day, what truly matters is that God has commanded you and given you a mission to bring people to the saving knowledge of Christ. We want to applaud the greatness of John, who did this, while at the same time think we are great for not doing this. For how many of us have stood daily evangelizing one person? How many of us have evangelized in the last week or the last month? How many of us have never evangelized? But yet we want to beat our chest and believe that for some odd reason that because we are, even though we are disobeying the greatest commandment God has given, the, greatest the great commission, that we are somehow great in his sight. Because I gave money to the church. Because I went to church. And yet we see it is the mission, it is the sacrificial living of the mission. You are an ambassador of Christ. I ask you, brothers and sisters, this morning, are you seeking to turn the hearts of those you love, those that you come in contact with, toward God? Does it even cross your mind that everyone that you come in contact with that is not a believer, that you have put forth some type of effort to turn their life, turn their hearts toward Christ? And notice that the angel said, the fathers to the children, the children to the fathers. Parents, you are an ambassador of Christ. Your children are the greatest commandment. Your children are the greatest mission field that you can possibly have. And we've advocated, parents, I'm going to let other people do that while I teach them to do something else. Do you turn their hearts toward sports? Toward TV? Toward prosperity? 
Are you turning the hearts of your children toward God? Are you seeking to turn the hearts of other family members and friends toward Christ? Your co-workers or your neighbors, brothers and sisters, just like John, how, how God sovereign, sovereignly and providentially put Zechariah and Elizabeth where they needed to be and John where he needed to be. God has providentially and sovereignly put people in your life for you to bring, turn their hearts toward him. It is not a chance that you come across lost people. It is not a chance that you, that you meet people in the marketplace and you meet people at work. It's not a chance that there are lost people that you know that you have relationships with. God has given them to you for a great mission of His. And you have the ability within you to lead them to Christ. It's called the Holy Spirit. And you have a great sword and a great source that would, that would bring joy to their life. It's called the scriptures and the gospel. Those who are great in the sight of God are those who embrace the mission. This means that you must learn the gospel. And if you don't know the gospel, we can help you with that. Three circles is a wonderful way in which we can do that, brothers and sisters. We must, you need to find those, you need to find those people that are in your circle and begin to minister to them, begin to love them and to pour the gospel into them, build relations with them, bring them into the church, begin praying for them. And just so that we don't just individualize this, brothers and sisters, we also must remember that as a church, we have a mission of reaching our Jerusalem. God has given us a great mission. And if we fail to embrace the great commission, how dare we ever believe that we are great in the sight of God? I asked you this at the beginning of this, what kind of greatness even matters? And the answer is none. For in Matthew 19, 30, Christ says, But many who, turn, who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Beloved, heaven's value system is far different than earth's value system. The world esteems those who are rich, rich and live in luxury. The, the rich young ruler, Herod the Great, the world loves those people and considers them great. But God frowned upon them. And yet it is those who are weak, who rely on the greatness of their God, those who are holy, the greatness of Christ's righteousness, and those who embrace the great mission that God has given us, who are favored in the eyes of God. Oh, I would beg of you and call upon you this morning to not get caught up in the, in the world's way of ranking things. To not define greatness according to the school systems or according to the government or according to whoever. True greatness in this world is found in Christ and Christ alone. His opinion is the only one that matters. Oh, brothers and sisters, hear me this morning. Be great by embracing that you are not great. And embrace a grand view of God. Seek the greatness of a Holy Spirit-filled life through the righteousness of Christ. Come to know Him as Savior and begin to live according to His commandments, according to His righteousness. And join the great mission of reaching our Jerusalem and bringing people to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.